I'm Alex Malaris. And I'm Tai Seifu. Alright, let's get going. Let's get go- let's get rolling here. We got a lot to talk about today. No time to waste. Playoffs. There we go. Uh how do we want do we want to go chronological order with uh the series that was that was almost done last week? Yeah. Colorado Nashville. Sure. Sounds good. Uh so yeah, Colorado closed it out. Darcy Kemper Woo. did not play in game four, but uh Rentals was fine. And they won five three. <laughs> uh, the the Preds got a lead for like five minutes in game four, and that was the only time they led during the entire series. And that's about all you need to know. Uh, even if Saros was playing his best, I find it hard to believe that, you know, Nashville could put much much of a better fight. And uh, yeah, Colorado's players came to play. Their stars came to play. McCarr was ridiculous. Um, and yeah, he, just, he was probably the star. best uh, One of the best players that we saw in that first round. I think he had 10 points in four games, which is, which is absolutely absurd. And uh, yeah, this this you know this it, it as you said we saw this one coming because it was just slanted the entire way through even despite the Connor Ingram effect. Yeah, as some may remember, I nailed Colorado in four. This will not be a theme moving forward as we discuss the rest of the series that I nailed it, but I nailed this one. Um, and by so many of the metric goal differential, uh, for such a small amount of games expected goals basically everything points to that this is one of the most lopsided series of the entire cap era so it wasn't just that saros was missing um all the metrics all the skaters colorado just completely outclassed nashville in pretty much every way and it's especially notable when you compare it to all the other series and the fact that two of them went six games and the other five went seven colorado was the only one who finished the series off in less than six games it took four for them none of them lasted five so compared to you know not just st louis who they're going to play in round two but every other team in the playoffs they got a bunch of extra rest that no one else got anywhere close to right a bunch of extra rest and also you know like a lot of the like also it's a mental thing too uh we talked about a couple of the series that you know maybe going into the playoffs you thought were were locks kind of like colorado nashville um where you see a significant disparity in talent you're, you're looking at calgary they ended up going seven, uh, and also Florida. They went six, but they were like they were a nervous six, you know. Where Washington, what they, they were the better team. It's just that Washington had leads in a lot of the games and ended up winning too. So Colorado just uh, they looking like they just they came here to take care of business, and it looks like they're locked in. They didn't take Nashville lightly at all, and they just had them completely figured out. I mean, nobody on Nashville really showed up, and other than their <laughs> other than their uh, you know no name goalie. And yeah, no, they just, they looked unstoppable. There's no way, best team, uh, obviously. I mean, for the only team to sweep, um, but it was, it was evident in the caliber of play, not just Nashville being, you know, a mediocre team. Maybe we can do like a brief eulogy for Nashville um, because they have an interesting offseason upcoming, if only for the fact that Philip Forsberg's a UFA and, you know, he's, well, I guess save UC, save UC Saros and Roman Yossi. He's their best player, and he's by far their best forward, even with the resurgence of Matt Duchesne. Philip Forsberg was on uh, – he had 42 goals in 69 games, so he could have broken 50 goals if he played the entire season. He was that good this year. He had It was a, a career year for him by far in goals and points. Um, so he is going to get a massive contract, either with Nashville or someone else. Does Nashville keep him around? Um, and – if so, does that mean they basically just remain in this playoff bubble purgatory 
for the next five years or so. Yeah, this is a, a nightmare situation for a franchise. We've talked about it before in terms of, you know, you, the one place you really don't want to be uh, as a franchise is mediocrity, uh, where, you know, you have a certain roster and you don't know whether to blow it up or to, you know, go for it and load up. And n- neither of them are the right answer, really, uh, because, you know, you look at the general manager situation, you have David Poyle. He can't, he's not going to rebuild, right, at his age. He doesn't have time left in his career to build a contender up from scratch. Um, but uh, this team sucks. <laughs> um, when you, well, it's not. It doesn't suck. It's just not contender status. It's nowhere near being a cup contender. Uh, there's just not enough talent. Uh, not enough talented players. It's just it's Forsberg, Saros, Yossi, and really kind of who else uh, other than you know an overpaid Duchesne. So yeah, this is this is the worst place to be. And it really does feel like either way, either way you go with Forsberg, it. It feels like it sucks, right? Um, unless you're you're getting a great haul for his for his free agent rights, but that's already quite unlikely if you look at historical precedent for free agents and their rights and, and UFAs. So you know, it, it it feels it's definitely a lose lose situation, and it's not looking bright at all for the next like seven years for Nashville because uh, yeah, they they don't have anything kind of built up for the future to contend. Yeah, really, the right thing to do was blow it up last summer, which is what they were starting to do, it looked like. The Ryan Ellis trade, uh, which didn't work out so well, but that's kind of besides the point, and the Victor Arvidsson trade too. And then they totally contradict themselves by giving Matthias Eckholm an extension. So they were like half in, half out. And finishing eighth in the West and getting killed by the Avalanche perfectly exemplifies half in, half out, and what that looks like uh, on the ice in practice. Um, but, you know, now it's kind of too late to do that teardown. Forsberg is expired. Uh, Edcombe is, you know, locked in for four more years. Yossi's locked in for a very long time, too. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't really look like there's an easy way out of this. So, good luck, David Poyle. I guess I guess that's that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. If they, if they rebuild earlier, if they blew it up earlier, they would be in such a better position as a franchise. Like, unbelievably so. Just, you know, like, what was the point of keeping Forsberg as, like, your, your own rental? You know, in the first place, uh, just so yeah. why you can get fucking blown out by Colorado in the first round. That's that's what you got out of that compared to whatever haul you could have gotten at the, even the deadline. Mm-hmm. And and also, you know, with uh, Duchesne's bounce back, even Ryan Johansson had a bounce back. You could potentially be able to recover some assets for them if you were to trade them this summer. Um, but you know, as as we've been talking about, that's that's pretty unlikely. Uh, and even if they were rebuilding now. You see Saros coming off, you know, he's a Vezina finalist. That could kickstart a tremendous rebuild by itself if you traded him. And you do have a Skarov in the pipeline, 19-year-old, very promising goalie. Um, but I'm, I'm talking about in hypotheticals, of course, here, because we, what we can probably expect David Poyle to do is kind of stay the course, finish around the exact same spot he finished in this year. Right, um, which is bad for the organization, but you bring up a good point. Saros feels like an untouchable, given the caliber of goalie he is. But, you know, he's not young, young. He's 27, which is, you know, it's not old goalie, goalie. young. It's goalie young. Um, But, you know, like, he, so, but you already have a, a kind of, uh, you know, his his almost backup already in the Skarov in the pipeline. And obviously, goalie development takes a while. But just think of the incredible assets you could get if you traded the guy. Because, you know, you're, you're going nowhere fast. Right, you need to do something drastic, and you're about to lose Forsberg for nothing, or you're going to sign him for to way too much money and lock him 
to your to your franchise for the next eight years or however many years. So yeah, it, it it's a it's a lose lose situation. There, that's that's all it is. This the roster is not good. It's old. It's overpaid, and there's no way forward really. All right, let's move on to a series that was very disappointing for us because we were looking to cheer on the Wild all the way to the Stanley Cup final, final or in your case, beyond to victory. Uh, they <laughs> lost to the Blues in six games. Embarrassing. Um, do you do you feel tremendous regret? What do you have to say for yourself? Yeah, well, you know, it was well documented on this podcast. I did a, a last-minute switcheroo. I uh, traded in my Colorado pick to go Wild all the way. Uh, and it just seems like you know they they didn't come to play. Yeah, uh, they just um, a series of of bad decisions and poor play. And the Blues were just flat out better near the end there, and they couldn't get their depth going. So yeah, sucks to suck. And it looks like my Stanley Cup pick is out in the first round, unlike you. So at least you haven't reached this this <laughs> this low low in your Stanley Cup bracket. Uh, yeah, starting off the the big choice here in the series. The big narrative uh, heading into it really was who are the Wild going to play at goalie, and they chose Flurry, and he wasn't good. Not you know he was okay, shaky at times for for a few of the games, and they just stuck it out with him uh, for the first five games. They were down three two. He I don't know what his save percentage off the top of my head it was probably around nine hundred. Was not looking good, and uh, in an elimination game, they switched to a goalie who hadn't played in in what what like around two weeks, and. Yeah, he looked rusty. <laughs> Did not look good, uh, especially on that first goal in Game Six. Was it like Nick Letty or some shit like that? Like, come on, you can't give up that goal in the elimination game. But you can't blame him. He hasn't played in two weeks. Uh, so yeah, and they just they couldn't they couldn't match the the offensive output that the Blues brought. So you know, it was a lot of back and forth. It was a solid series, but ultimately just not good enough. And uh, the Wild, we can talk about it in a bit, but are are kind of doomed moving forward in terms of their contention window. Yeah, I I really think, well, two things sunk the Wild mainly, and one of them was the goaltending. Flurry, as you mentioned, like you know, he was fine and he was shaky at times. And when you're as evenly matched with the team as you are with the Blues, and where Bennington rose to the occasion as soon as he came in, uh, that's not good enough. But what really, you know, if if you you know play a good goalie or whatever, and the good goalie is bad in the series, too bad. But it really felt like at the start, it was kind of a head-scratching move because, you know, Bill Guerin acquires Fleury at the trade deadline, pays a, a not a crazy price, a fair price, I guess. And then right away, Cam Talbot was sucked out of his slump, and all of a sudden he was spectacular for the rest of the season. And yet they went to Fleury in the playoffs. And it feels like goaltending, more than, more than any other position, you should be riding the hot hand. And I wonder if Bill Guerin kind of had a say in this decision to play Flurry. He's like, no, I went out and got this guy, so we're playing this guy. If so, obviously, you know, that would be a tremendous mistake. Um, but the other reason Minnesota lost, they don't have any goals they scored this series. Uh, I think probably around 15, 16. They scored 16. And do you know how many of them were scored by Kirill Kaprizov? <laughs> uh, did he score six, seven? Seven, nearly half. Nearly half of the goals yeah. were Kirill Kaprizov. The other three was, were Joel Eriksson Ek, and one goal each for Zuccarello, Brodin, Dumba, Boldy, Greenway, and Freddie Gaudreau. Uh, one name notably not on that list is Kevin Fiala, who had three assists in six games. He was a total no-show. Uh, and 
what I'm what I'm trying to say, I guess, is the depth so the depth scoring for Minnesota didn't show up at all, uh, which is especially concerning considering one of the problems we'd been pointed out the Blues was that their defense is top heavy and they have some holes like Nick Letty and Marco Scandella and Robert Bortuzzo when he plays. So that's something Minnesota should be able to expose, but they weren't able to. Yeah, and it's it's kind of strange for Fiala too because he was doing so well at the end of the season, the regular season. Uh, and I don't know, the minute the playoffs started, he just disappeared. Uh, Ryan Hartman too. I don't think he scored any goals. So yeah, really just that 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 secondary effort. Um, you know, that really that whole second line. Uh, you know, Hartman Fiala, uh, and uh Matt Boldy also didn't do much. Uh it just yeah, they couldn't support Kaprizov, who really just elevated his game. He's incredible, just a superstar. Um, but the team around him just wasn't good enough. And yeah, I just I don't understand going back to the goaltending decision, I really can't find a reason to go with really flurry in game one, other than, oh, he's got you know, the, the playoff pedigree or whatnot. And that's really it, right? Because, yeah, Talbot had a hot hand. And, you know, what's the point of having two good goalies if you're not comfortable riding the hot hand when it comes to the playoffs? So, yeah, if I, and it's not like Fleury was having a great season this year anyways. He wasn't very good in Chicago. And he was fine when he came over to Minnesota. He was solid. But nothing really special and nothing to kind of rival what Talbot brought once Fleury was brought in. So, so yeah, that was uh that was that. I mean, we saw we also saw the Blues. They had a very strong power play, and the Wild just couldn't match it either. Uh, so you know there was a special teams mismatch, and but we knew that heading into the season, uh, heading into the series, and it was uh yeah, it was really that depth scoring I think that sunk them. That and the goaltending. So you know it's it's pretty pretty straightforward to point out what went wrong. Uh, and yeah, moving forward, I mean they really put. They're all their eggs in the basket this year because of the Suter and Parise buyouts. Uh, and yeah, m- moving forward, I, like, I don't see how they, they keep Kevin Fiala because he's a UFA. Uh, and uh, he is a UFA, right? And uh, uh, yeah, they no, just, he's an RFA. RFA. Okay, so at least they can get they, they can trade his rights uh, and you know get a haul for him in terms of futures. But they don't have the cap space to resign the guy, even though he is an RFA. Uh, and... You know, I don't think they'll be able to pay whatever he gets in arbitration. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think this is a, a wise approach in terms of franchise management, putting all your eggs in a basket, given, you know, in any given years, it's uh, it's tough to win the Stanley Cup and you, you'll you'll meet one of these teams and you'll lose in this, such a fashion. Uh, but they didn't really have a choice because of, you know, what those contracts did to them. And uh, here they are. It's a, it's a murky future now. Yeah. By the way, Tyson Jost and Nick Delore also didn't get any points. In the series, but you know, I was thinking also, you know, Parise sort of the buyouts about twelve million million dollars total against the cap next year. It sounds very ugly when you put it that way. Looking at the actual, you know, state of things, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that the roster is going to have to be that much worse than it was this year because they have a lot of players on ELCs on reasonable contracts. Matthew Boldy uh, on his ELC still. Marco Rossi is probably going to make the team next year. Ryan Hartman's making under two million for the next couple seasons. So they have reason. Cam Talbot, who's probably going to be the starter again next year, uh, is under four million. It's uh, three point six seven approximately. So right now, as I just opened Cap Friendly Armchair GM, they basically default. Well, once I slide Marco Rossi up to the roster, uh, they default to a cap hit of about seventy six million dollars, and the salary cap I think is going up to eighty two point five next year. This is you know without a Fiala extension which would probably get them extremely close to that number with a roster of 12 forwards, seven defensemen, 
And for now, no backup goalie. So it, it could be a tight, a tight squeeze. But I think, you know, if they wanted to find a way to make it work, Fiala could be on the team again next year. And then we're looking at uh, a pretty similar team coming back, only losing, you know, the likes of Jordy Ben, Nick Deloria, Nick Bugstad, finding a new backup rather than Fleury, that type of thing. So I don't think, if we believed in the Wild this year, I think we would be well advised to believe in them again because it's probably going to be a similar team. Yeah, we'll see. I think, you know, losing that second line winger and a really good second line winger in Kevin Fiala, if they don't manage, because, you know, that relationship hasn't been good either. It's not just a matter matter of cap situation. Uh, we've heard rumblings basically all season when it comes to, you know, is Fiala going to be traded? Doesn't look like their re-signing negotiations are going so well. And, you know, the relationship between him and, and Bill Guerin doesn't seem to be, you know, very smooth at this point. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they managed to lose him. And, you know, what's the return going to be? Probably going to be futures. So, yeah, I think, you know, and, and then at that point, where's your upgrade coming, right? You're losing Kevin Fiala. How are you going to replace that hole in the roster? Signed Brian Rust. <laughs> I find it tough. Well, I mean, like, how much is Brian Rust going to make? And can they fit that under the More cap? More than Fiala. Exactly. That's what I mean. So it's... You know, it's it, it, I think it is a significant upgrade, uh, downgrade in that, you know, maybe it's the, the number of players they lose isn't so much. Uh, but I think Fiala is just, you know, the role he plays on this team. It's it's going to be tough to replace given that cap situation now that they're paying $12 million. Uh, and it's, you know, for the next, what, three years. Yeah, fair. Also, Marco Rossi is my early Calder pick for next year. I'm team Marco Rossi forever. You shall never be underestimated, so... I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked, honestly, if he made up for a bunch of the production that Ken Fiala had been doing for the Wilds as of late. Yeah, that's possible. It's possible, but you are banking on a rookie, and that's, you know, that's tough to do. Usually they, you know, it takes, it takes a couple of years at least, um, especially the consistent performance. You know, rookies, they have up and downs uh, as they go. The consistent production that Fiala brings, uh, you know, barring the playoffs, uh, it's, it's hard to replace. And... Yeah, man. Like, just think about how how much better the situation would be if they didn't have those twelve million dollars. Uh, you could keep Fiala, you could bring on Rossi, and you could probably make you know an upgrade somewhere else. Uh, but alas, that's man, that hurts them so much. This, this is probably they could have had a contention window had they not you know signed those brutal contracts. Mm-hmm. Really looking back, which I think I even said at the time. Uh, besides the fact that apparently people in the locker room hated Ryan Suter. Which you know is unconfirmed. Paris is the only one that was really like, yeah, we need to buy you out because Ryan Suter is still you know a capable top four defenseman. Seven point five million was a tremendous overpay at that point, but you know you could live with it. Paris being on your fourth line and like an occasional healthy scratch that was the one you really need to get rid of, and then you know you'd you'd be in a better situation. So, so I guess I guess that's what I'm saying is it was kind of odd how. Uh, maybe there was this kind of illusion within the wild front office that those two contracts just needed to exist in tandem forever, that they were signed <laughs> on the same day and they were identical. And so you either buy out both or you buy out neither, kind of like the Sedines or something. Yeah, maybe. Or they just, you know, he was he was enough of a cancer that they wanted to boot him in terms of suitor. Because, uh, yeah, it, it like, I mean, look, he left the team. The minute he leaves, look at look at the wild now, right? Completely different. I mean, their defense looks lost in the first round. Fair, fair. But <laughs> how many points do they have in the in the regular season? Like 113. Yeah, yeah. So I know they did take a. Uh, they were just completely different. Like I bought into the Wild for the first time ever, really. And you know, 
I think the lack of Ryan Suter definitely contributed to that. I don't hate the move. It's just I hate the move signing him in the first place. And obviously that's, you know, going back like more than a decade. But or yeah, basically a decade. But it is what it is. And uh so they're they're boned now. I, I don't think that you know, I I think they had to do the buyout and you know, they missed their chance. As for uh the blues, I, f- I feel you know when we were previewing this series, we kept on being like we're both being the wild, but we better not underestimate the Blues. This has come back to bite us. Then we picked the Wild to go to the final, and it came back to bite us. Um, <laughs> they had you know this is where depth comes into in handy when you have three lines that are all basically the equivalent of like a really good second line more or less. Then you're pretty often going to be have at least a couple of the players red hot. And this time, that was notably Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron. David Perron opened the series with a hat trick and ended the series with five goals and four assists for nine points in six games. O'Reilly on the same line as him with eight points. And Tarasenko had five goals in the series as well. So they uh, their forward depth really, really outmatched Minnesota's. And that was the big difference, along with Jordan Bennington, once he came into the series, posting a 943 in three games. Very upsetting. Very upsetting. Uh, but yeah. They're just, they just they they kept up the tour scoring, the the wagon status that they had in the regular season, and honestly they they took it up another level, especially that O'Reilly line. Uh, just yeah, <laughs> I kind of I kind of counted them out. I can't lie because uh, you know they're they're awfully aged. It feels, uh, but you know Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron coming kind of out of nowhere. Um, and but yeah, that's what they they've relied on all year. Their defense hasn't been good all year. Uh, but you know they've managed to overcome it. With all that forward scoring, um, you know, moving forward, should we do our our preview of uh, Colorado versus the Blues, or should we push that? Yeah, go after? for it. Yeah, I think you know this is. The, I think the the depth certainly will present a challenge to Colorado uh, in that you know it's it's a it's a funky matchup because Colorado has that depth too. Um, I think uh, I think Colorado has the better depth overall. So I think this depth on depth matchup, um, I like Colorado much better, but. You know, well, mostly because the Blues don't have a defense. Uh, but the 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 Blues forwards they come at you in waves, much like Colorado, maybe at a, at a, at a lower caliber of player. But you know, we're talking about like Pavel Bushnevich now playing on the second line in second line minutes because that O'Reilly line has been so good. So I, it, it'll 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 be. I think the the X factor is you know, a can the Blues defense like. I don't. I don't want to say hold up because I can't even expect that much. You know, can they like be <laughs> re- remotely competent uh, in the face of you know like Makar, McKinnon, and all that? Uh, and can, can Jordan Bennington keep it up? Uh, we'll see. I I can't say I have much faith though, uh, given those two X factors, because I think you know the Blues have a very good four core. I don't think they're gonna get run over by the the Avalanche in terms of offensive production. But I think it's really those the, their weak points in the roster that the Avalanche don't have where. You know, if they if they want a chance, that's where it's going to have to stand out. If the Blues do beat the Avalanche, it will have been because Bennington stayed at this level he's maintained in this very small sample size against Minnesota. He stays Hashik level, Jake Ottinger level. That's what that's what we're going to need to see from Jordan Bennington. Um, and you know, there's a part of me who's like, yeah, I picked Colorado to lose in round two, so maybe I should you know stick with that. But I'm not going to. I'd probably go Colorado in like five. Um, and that's partly because you want to want to hear my fun take. 
Yeah. I think Nathan McKinnon and Kale McCarr is the best offensive duo in the NHL. And that may not sound like such a hot take, but it kind of feels hot to me because most of the time people talk about two forwards in that context, like, you know, McDavid, Dreisaitl, or Matthews Marner or something like that. But the way Kale McCarr, you know, he's probably going to win the Norris Trophy the way he played in the regular season. And he stepped it up even further in those in those four games against Nashville. I don't know if we've seen a defenseman dominate like this offensively since, like, um, the first that comes to mind is Eric Carlson 2017 on that incredible run where he dragged Ottawa on, like, one and a half legs to the conference final where they almost beat the Penguins in game seven. Um, but honestly, right now, McCarr might be playing even better than that. So... I don't think the Blues are going to have an answer for them. No, I don't think so. And he just generates a ridiculous amount of offense for, for a defenseman. Not even for a defenseman, but for a forward, right? Uh, and I'm talking about Kale McCarr. Uh, it's just, he it's just keeps shooting and shooting and shooting, and he finds space. And it's just, it's crazy. He's, a, he's, he's you know, he's, is he, uh, I forget if he's a Hart nominee um, at this point. Probably No, not. he isn't. That's, that is a shame. Uh, because Could have been, though. Yeah, absolutely, because he's he's just absolutely electric, and he showed you why in the playoffs against the Preds. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't see how they have an answer, uh, given you know the state of the St. Louis defense, which oh boy, that is that is quite the collection of names <laughs> to go up especially against with Tori Krug injured. Yeah, Tori no. Krug injured. It's not right now. It's Colton Pareko with Nick Letty, Justin Falk with Callie Rosen. Remember him? Blast from the past. <laughs> Nico Mikola and Robert Bortuzzo, and then they're playing 7D apparently with Scott Perinovich. That's three assists in three games this series. Look at him go. There we go. Uh, maybe he'll he'll be the 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 poor man's Kale McCarr over here, generating offense uh, like yeah, a madman. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it, it's that mismatch where and I and when it comes to best duo, I think you know in terms of value added, just how much value McCarr brings as a defenseman, absolutely. Uh, I think I think they're on par, just in terms of raw offensive production to a McDavid dry saddle combo because that's a team that's a pair that absolutely just drags that team across the line uh, because uh, there's there's nobody else good on that roster. So yeah, that's uh, oh I don't think I gave my prediction uh, for this roster in terms of uh, this matchup in terms of games. I am picking the Avalanche in six. I think uh, the Blues take a couple. I think, you know, it's time for the Avalanche. They're, they're second round, you know, demons. Maybe they'll get it shaky, but at the end of the day, they're just too much talent on this roster. There are no holes on the Avalanche. So I give it to the Avalanche pretty comfortably. You know, I might have Kill McCarr at like third best NHL player right now if I had to. I might go like McDavid, Matthews, McCarr. The argument could definitely be made. Like yeah, he's, you know. Absolutely. Are you putting maybe but McKinnon ahead of him or... Dreisaitl or Kucherov is maybe even a stretch. Honestly, I might have McCarr number three. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think in terms of you know a best NHL player. I don't think Dreisaitl is in that conversation when you compare it to McCarr. I think McCarr is just so. I think he's like you know significantly better than Dreisaitl because of you know Dreisaitl's liability in the defensive zone and whatnot. Uh, and so I think it's down to you know <laughs> McCarr or his teammate McKinnon. Or maybe Shesterkin, yeah. given how he played this year, is is the other guy I might propose. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think it's out of the question at all because he's 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 incredible. Just but how ridiculous. about Drew Doughty and Jonathan Taves? 
uh yeah no uh, i'm not i'm not, i didn't i didn't notice we, i didn't realize we were back in 2014 um don't don't tell them though don't tell them <laughs> they probably yeah, voted for drew themselves Dowdy. for the ted Lindsay. <laughs> i'm sure drew dowdy did it was like yeah. Look, i i wasn't on the team they lost in the first round so i'm the most valuable player speaking of which <laughs> oh the kings lost to the oilers much to your despair Boom, what a segue yeah, yeah. That one was a little bit upsetting. Um, and, you know, last week I said, like, yeah, I regret picking the Kings because the Oilers have totally clobbered them two games in a row. And the Kings won game four and five, and I was back on board. And all throughout game seven, I was watching Jonathan Quick thinking, I have never seen a goalie look so bad while giving up so few <laughs> goals. <laughs> and, you know, the tr- the same could be said for Mike Smith, who had a shutout. Both these right. goalies, yep. who are over 35, Looked incredibly shaky, and yet it was a two nothing game. It was it was quite remarkable to watch. Quite absolutely, um, yeah. Just, just we we knew it heading into the series. Uh, the uh, I mean, not the X factor, but the L factor potentially for either of these teams <laughs> <laughs> was their goaltending. Because <laughs> either way, they you know either one of them could blow it at any given moment. Uh, you know, see game one, Mike Smith. Uh, so, but yeah, at the end of the day, especially game six and seven. And even game five, when they, you know they came back to to tie it up before they you know they they got you know clobbered in overtime and that can't be with that can't be goal. Uh, it really was the Connor McDavid show, and you know not much else for the Oilers to be totally frank, and uh, nothing from the Kings because you know as I said prior to the series, not much talent on that roster that I would trust to show up on any given night. Um, but you know McDavid was just driving the bus for for 180 minutes basically. Well, you know he wasn't on the ice the entire time, but. Uh, yeah, well, what, game five, six, seven, it was just the Connor McDavid show. Just generating offensive chance after offensive chance. Basically, any Oilers goal, you could count on him to, you know, not only be on the ice, but had made the play prior to or just scored the goal himself. And yeah, he he scored the scored the game series winning goal in game seven, scored that first goal, uh, assisted on that second one, or maybe it was the other way around. Oh, no, it was the other way around, right? He scored the second goal. Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, it, that's that's all there is really, and the Oilers have shown nothing to convince me that they're a good team at all, besides Connor McDavid. Uh, so you know that narrative has been solidified in my mind. But yeah, the Kings just weren't good enough. There's not enough talent, and uh, McDavid just kind of took over. Yeah, I do think the Kings, you know, in the general scheme of things, are heading in a positive direction. Right. They still have the very strong prospect pool we've been talking about for years. Could probably, you know. Use a nice goalie if they want to draft one of those. Those I'm not sure anyone, anyone would complain, um, because Jonathan Quick cannot hold up much longer. Drew Doughty and might. Cal Peterson Drew had Doughty a bad year. <laughs> Drew Doughty might complain. Yeah, how dare you trade Jonathan Quick? He won a Smythe Trophy one time. Um, I also want to talk about Philippe Dano, of course, because I'm, I'm sure you remember last year when Montreal went to the Stanley Cup Finals. But like every other thing they were talking about on Sportsnet and TSN was how Philip Dano was so amazing. And he shut down, you know, all the best players on the other team. Even in the Stanley Cup final when they lost, he shut down the kucherov Braden point line. And it was all the death scoring for Tampa that got it done. And this year, he mostly, you know, did the same thing. Um, but I, looking at his stats page, noticed last year in the playoffs, in 22 games, he had four points. This year in seven games, he had five points. Also, the regular season, he more than doubled his uh, career-high goal total with 27. The previous one was uh, 13, and he also 
nearly got a new career high in points with 51. So he took some pretty big offensive strides this year too. So for all we were talking about, you know, giving 5.5 million AAV to a guy who can't score, might come back to bite you. All of a sudden he can score. So that contract looks like it's absolutely worth it. Yeah. Good for him for proving us wrong. Uh, because, yeah, it's basically, you know, where do these hands come from? I'm confused. I guess he had a really good summer or just, you know, the L.A. hockey hockey scene is just that much better. Because, uh, yeah, he, he chipped in on offense, too. And and he just, you know, he he's dominant as they come in terms of as, as a defensive center. So, you know, it, it's certainly a, a solid acquisition. Um, and I think it'll be a positive influence for the Kings, you know, the developing Kings core uh, as they move forward. I think, yeah, the, it, the future is bright. The pipeline is absolutely stacked, and but it just wasn't the year. Uh, you look at the, you just look at the talent this year. It just was not good enough. Um, but you know, give it two, three, four years, um, put them in a good environment to develop, and we could be looking at a contender. Absolutely. Yep. Um, last up, uh, Cal- uh, last up in the West. Sorry, not last up overall. Calgary, Dallas. Man, this one, this this one got me. This one got to me. I was okay. Here's here's what I was. So we were talking. You know, Dallas was leading the series two to one after Game Three. And I was talking about how I felt vindicated. You know, this was probably one of my longest shot upset picks I've ever taken in the playoffs, and it I was almost right. So close. I was very close. <laughs> one and you know goal. what? Yeah. I was almost right, and you were almost wrong. So I I like that. <laughs> I like the sound of that. So I'm I'm gonna call this a win. For me, because you know Dallas, they were just one bounce away from making me look like the smartest person in the world. But it was it was not quite to be. But I I still feel you know all my analysis on here's what has to go right for Dallas to win, it pretty much all happened to a T, and they almost won. So I still feel correct in everything I said about why Dallas really had a strong strong chance at taking the Flames down. Yeah, you're you're right. I I heap the praise unto you. For a bold pick that almost pay- paid off. Because, yeah, it was really just one bounce. They were one bounce away from eliminating the Flames. Hell, they went to Game 7 overtime, right? So, uh, yeah, no. The, the, the problem was, right, the Flames, just they, they unlocked their performance near the end of the series. They figured out, you know, okay, they figured out how they played in the regular season, basically. They rediscovered themselves. That top line uh, found that scoring touch. And, I mean, that Game 7, yes, it did go to overtime. But, yeah, it was just... it was they were getting goalied up until that point. And Ottinger was absolutely fantastic in the entire series. But, you know, if the Stars were better <laughs> on, like, you know, in terms of their skaters, they'd probably have won the game, given how Ottinger was playing. Because uh, the Flames just poured it on in that Game 7 and the Game game 5 too, uh, where it just had all the chances. It was evident to anybody who looked. You look at the shot counter. You look at just the expected goals. Uh, it was just, you know, Ottinger playing out of his mind. Uh, and that was almost enough. But, uh, you know, shout out to Markstrom, Jacob Markstrom. He was uh, very solid, you know, only giving up two goals. The start, he went deep into overtime. Stars himself had like 30 shots. So, yeah, looking like the Vezina finalist that he is. So, you know, good good for him. Ottinger obviously stole the stole the show. Probably perhaps one of the uh, top, you know, maybe one, two, or three best players in the first round. He was great throughout, kept him in it. Uh, but, you know, that's... Uh, we got we got ourselves the battle of Alberta now because the Flames are just they were the better team they deserve to win and uh you know the, the you know I, I I texted you uh in the middle of that game near the end where uh 
you know, Andre was just playing out of his mind. Uh, it, uh, I felt my allegiance almost shifting to the stars because it would have been just so funny to see the Flames get eliminated in the first round like this. Um, even though, even though it would mean having to watch the fucking Dallas Stars uh, <laughs> go up against like against the, the Edmonton Oilers, Oilers uh, in the second round, it was almost worth it. But, but alas, uh, I'm okay with them losing. I'm okay with not having to watch the Stars this year. I gotta say. Yeah, I'd probably have Jake Ottinger alongside Kyle McCarr as like the MVPs of round one, even though Ottinger didn't quite come up on the winning side of things. Because, you know, last night in game seven, he was was might have been one of the best goaltending performances I've ever seen, not just in quantity, but in quality. Especially in overtime. He made some some miraculous saves. Um, which kind of makes it all the more disappointing that uh, the tying goal he gave up to Kachuk and the winning goal scored by Gaudreau. We're just kind of like ho-hum plays. Yeah. It felt like, you know, a goalie that was playing that well should have had those. And it's not like they were stinkers or anything like that. But it was like, you know, really out of of all the saves you made before, that's the one you give up. Kind of made it hurt a little extra. Yeah, it did. Uh, But, uh, you know, Johnny Gaudreau scoring that Game 7 OT winner feels good for him. And, uh, yeah, top three, I think I would have McDavid, Ottinger, and Makar. Uh, I don't know what order. But I feel like, you know, they, they respectively took over their own series uh, even though Ottinger didn't manage to win his. Uh, so yeah, that is the West. We can look at the uh, the preview for the Battle of Alberta that we've thing. got ourselves. Yep, go ahead. One more thing on Dallas. Uh, Rupe Hintz was not playing in Game 7. He was hurt. Uh, Vladislav Nemesnikov took his spot on the top line, got a goal. Uh, Ty Delantrio was in the lineup. Um, basically, what I'm trying to say is I will take comfort in the fact that if Rupe Hintz was playing, <laughs> Dallas would have won, no question. It would have been super easy. Would have been a dominant showing. Of course, yeah. Uh, so you know you can you can sleep easy knowing that. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, moving looking forward, we got the Flames and the Oilers. That's a that's a fun matchup. Uh, just because of the cross province beef that we may see. Um, but aside from that, that beef isn't Alberta beef a thing? Isn't that like yeah? They like they got like Angus beef. You know they're big on the cow production. I'm pretty sure. So. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Good point. I was unintentional. Um, yeah, it feels like you know, with the the Flames kind of you know getting their top line going after a quiet you know first three games, uh, and then being able to kind of dominate at five on five, and just the sheer depth. Tyler Toffoli was pretty good this series, uh, and you know the Flames roster, the forwards showed up. Uh, it's just you know they got goalie for for large swaths of that series against the Stars. Uh, meanwhile, the Oilers, uh, while Connor McDavid is you know, showing why he's the best player in the world right now. Uh, the rest of that roster inspires absolutely zero confidence. Uh, and I have a hard time seeing how the Oilers win, you know, even if Connor McDavid goes off, which he has against the Kings. Um, I just, I don't see the move forward because it feels like the Oilers are outmatched. I agree wholeheartedly. You know, it's kind of, you know, and for some, it may be a, a difficult instinct to bet against McDavid. But think of it this way. You were just calling him like one of the top three players in round one. He took over the series against the LA Kings, who might have been the worst team in the entire playoffs, and the Kings still took them to seven games. Whereas you look at Calgary, who just, you know, nearly got goalied by Jake Ottinger, who had, you know, one of the best series from a goalie we've seen in, you know, in a while, one of the top ones. And Calgary still managed to come out on top. Now they're going up against Mike Smith, 
they put in a similar performance. Do you think Mike Mike Smith's going to be anywhere close to Jake Ottinger level? I really don't think so, even though he's been okay. I foresee the Flames mopping the floor with the Oilers. I'm going to go Calgary in five. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. I'm going to have to agree on both counts, uh, the team and the game number, because, uh, yeah, it's just... I. <laughs> it, it the completely different vibes like the Oilers the vibe is man you almost fucking lost and you should have you know taken care of business with this shitty ass team that really didn't have much to show in terms of the Kings um other than you know Dano and Kopitar to an extent uh but with the with the Flames it feels like you know they've they've exercised their demons uh both in, you know you know they got good the, that top line finally performing in the playoffs so their stars are doing well uh and you know they beat the Dallas Stars who took them out two years ago so it just everything's kind of clicking and yeah you almost got goalied but you pushed through it and that feels like the momentum's on their side meanwhile the Oilers it was like you know you're you the rest your whole roster could not do anything for themselves uh, in you know for most of that series other than Connor McDavid and also we didn't mention that Leon Dreisaitl is injured with uh I think it looks like an ankle issue uh but he looked hobbled in game seven so you know, a hobbled Leon Dreisaitl with a shit roster and bad depth with Mike Smith and Nett, who granted can give in a, g- a great, excellent performance every so often, but you can't trust them for consistency. Uh, yeah, I, it's 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 tough to pick the Oilers, so I'm not going to do that. All right, let us slide over to the Eastern Conference now. Why don't we do Metropolitan Division? Carolina-Boston. This was another one that I got wrong, that we both got wrong. You both picked the Bruins was not to be. It was Carolina in seven. It was a close one. Max Domi had two goals and an assist in game seven to propel the Hurricanes to victory. You know, I don't feel bad or stupid about this one either because it was close and it could have gone either way. Yeah, that's right. Um, It just, it, it just, it, it, that's exactly right. And it feels like it was those small matchups uh, that Carolina won that ended up making the difference. I look at, you know, depth scoring. Obviously, Max Domi is the glaring example because he got all those points in Game 7. Um, but, yeah, I thought the Bruins' depth, <laughs> which it feels like we talk about every year, let, and we thought maybe it would be solved this year because they looked so good down the stretch, it let them down. Uh, we're looking at, like, you know, like that Trent Frederick line. I think Trent Frederick wasn't even playing. He got, like, healthy scratched for, what, Games 4 and 5? Because uh, he wasn't playing well. And that whole line, at 5-on-5, five five, I think they scored zero goals in seven games. Uh, and, you know, they, they you needed them to score. That probably makes a difference and gets them the series win if they manage to unlock that scoring. Uh, and, yeah, Antiranta was, like, pretty good for a guy who was, like, probably not 100% healthy. So, you know, it was a tight series, though. And I, you know... Very, it was the really the small things that I can point at because I didn't think there were any anything glaring coming from Boston. They just went up. It was two good teams that went up against each other. Yep, and you know what? I do feel extremely correct about when I said, you know, Andy Rant is pretty good when he's healthy. There's no need for Carolina to try to rush Freddie Anderson back. I was right again. Two things I was right about in the series that I predicted incorrectly. Look at me go. Wow, excellent. Good, good stuff. Good stuff. Um. You know, I we're gonna I'm gonna use that to counter with what I felt like I got right, even though the series result did not was not reflected in that correctness. And I'm talking about the Penguins versus the Rangers, uh, because I picked the Penguins heading into it, even though I a I I will admit I was not confident in the pick. I did end up picking them, 
and they completely dominated the Rangers at 5-on-5 five five the entire series. The Rangers did not look like they belonged against the freaking Pittsburgh Penguins, who haven't been very good uh, as of late, especially down the stretch. Um, but so, but meanwhile, they were up 3-1 even. I don't think we mentioned that last week because we weren't at that point in the series. They were up 3-1, looking like you know they were going to push them to the brink of elimination. And uh, yeah, they just collapsed. Not only collapsed in the sense that they blew a 3-1 series lead, but they dominated each of all of games 5, 6, and 7. The Penguins did had leads in all of them and managed to blow it late in basically all of them. So, you know, they won 7-2 in game four. It was looking like a party. And, you know, they were, I think they're up two goals in game five. And then Sidney Crosby got injured. That's the one thing, man. If he doesn't get injured there after that, you know, questionable Truba hit, the Penguins probably win that game because they were, it was a completely different game the moment Crosby left the ice with what was probably a concussion. Uh, and it was, so, it was confirmed. Oh, it was. There we go. And somehow he came back for game seven. What the hell is up with that? That was a uh, bad we'll, idea. We'll, we'll get into that into a minute, but yeah, it, with that Crosby concussion, it kind of changed the tide. And the, the fact of the matter is there were just, it feels like, you know, it was just a bunch of extenuating circumstances for the, for the penguins. that kind of caved them in because they were just straight flat out the better team. But you know, their goalie wasn't good because it's a third string goalie. Who's, you know, barely an NHL player in Louis Domingue. Uh, you know, he, he was fine in overtime in that game one, but just down the stretch, he gave up too much. Uh, and he didn't give you the saves that you needed, even though Shesterkin on the other side wasn't great either. It's just Louis Domingue was actually pretty bad. Uh, and they had a whole bunch of injuries. Crosby, Dumoulin just never came back. Uh, even when Jari came back for game seven, he was pretty clearly injured. He wasn't fantastic. And yeah, it just, man, I, I felt like I got that one right. And yet the, the Rangers still managed to pull it off. And I'm sad about it. Yeah, I picked the Rangers in this series, and the Rangers won, and I still feel stupid. That's how bad they were. <laughs> um, yeah, everything you mentioned. I think I saw like the expected goals metrics were like wildly in Pittsburgh's favor for six out of the seven games, and New York was only you know in favored in like one of them. Um, and I, it was so odd how similar games five and six were. Penguins up two nothing after the first period. In the second period, New York scores three goals. And then Pittsburgh answers back with one, and it's 3-3 going into the third period. And in the third period, the Rangers score two and win 5-3. That happened in both game five and six. That's ridiculous <laughs> and insane. And also, you may have forgotten, as part of that, Pittsburgh blew a multi-goal lead in both game five and game six. And they were, I don't remember if it was a multi-goal lead, but they definitely had a, at least one lead in game seven as well. So they had many, many chances to close this out, and they blew every last one of them. And if this were a team that hadn't won two Stanley Cups in recent memory, then, you know, all we'd see is, you know, choker this, choker that. Uh, they're never going to be able to win anything. Uh, but because it's Crosby and Malkin and company, people chalk it up to a fluke. Yeah. And, you know, the Penguins have... How many How many first-round eggs is that, is that in a row now? Uh, I know they four. lost four. That's... I mean... <laughs> That is that is a lot of first round exits. Them and the Caps too. Uh, we will talk about in a minute. Um, you know, I think the Caps haven't haven't won a series since they won the Stanley Cup. Uh, but it feels like you know, with with the core of both of these teams on the decline as they age out, uh, we don't give them shit because they won that cup. And like, understandably, nah, so. as it should be. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, they choked it absolutely. I think you know the external winning circumstances are one thing, but you're absolutely right. Uh, it does feel like they fucking choked. 
for for large swaths of it as well. And yeah, one guy I want to shout out is uh, well, I talked about how Dumoulin was injured, and we talked last week about how Mike Matheson and Crystal Tang looked terrible together. Well, they were kept together the entire series, and I want to shout out Mike Matheson for being just horrid in his own zone. Uh, and uh, yeah, the three glaring examples are those three own goals that he managed to fucking kick into his own net. How does that even happen? How does somebody <laughs> kick it in their net three times in a seven-game series? That's absolutely absurd. It's a lack of awareness that is previously unheard of in your own zone. And I just don't understand how he did it. It's impressive. Think about it. That's fucking impressive. You know, we give someone shit for, you know, kicking in their own net once. And let alone twice. And I've never even heard of three times in the same damn series. Uh, and in a series where, you know, it was just, you know, it was 5-3 for games five and six. For, but for both of them. They were empty net goals for the Rangers. So, you know, it was really 4-3. So the last three games in a 4-3, that probably makes a difference. So, you know, shame on you, Mike Matheson. But that's what he is. And you put him with a... It's, it's such a bad, bad vibe chemistry combo with uh, Latang and Matheson. We talked about it last week. It just... It didn't work out. They looked like shit all series, uh, especially in their own zone. And, yeah. And on the other team, uh, Mika Zibanejad looked fantastic. He had a hat trick in, uh, I think, Game 6. He had another goal in Game 7. He just... Uh, he was the guy who who drove the bus offensively for the Rangers in the sparse moments they were actually playing offense. Let Mike Matheson be yet another example of when you have a defenseman who's bad on the top pair and good on the bottom pair, just because they're good on the bottom pair won't mean that they'll be good when you move them back up to the top pair. It'll probably mean they'll be bad again. Cody CC comes to mind. And Michael Matheson is probably, as we saw in this series, an even more egregious example of that. But before we move on from Pittsburgh, I want to give them a bit of an offseason preview too because out of teams to keep an eye on this summer, Pittsburgh might be at the top of the list based on how many UFAs they have, how many high-quality UFAs they have. Do you know this list? Do you know who's on this list? No, not exactly. I know Brian Rust, and that's about it. All right, here's everyone who's played at least a game for Pittsburgh this season who's a UFA. Evgeny Malkin, Brian Rust, Ricard Raquel, Evan Rodriguez, Brian Boyle, Anthony Angelo, Chris Letang, Nathan Beaulieu, Yuso Ricola, Casey DeSmith, and Louis Domingue. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, that is that is a lot of fucking talent. Jesus yes, Christ. Yes, it sure is. So, and they have, and these players have all the negotiating leverage. So we'll, we'll see. I think you know Malkin is a no-brainer. Uh, and but you know it doesn't sound like talks have gone particularly well between the two camps so yeah certainly an interesting one and i think how much cap space do they have to work with like around 28 million is what i see on cap friendly so you certainly won't be able to sign everybody back and between you know malkin rust and latang you gotta one of them's gotta go probably uh because you just don't i have think the it's gotta be latang probably yeah at his age doesn't make sense to uh sign him and that's uh yeah, they're gonna they're gonna have a big gaping hole on the blue line if so. Even Rust is gonna be like, that's a tough one because he's thirty. He's thirty. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he's due for a a massive raise from his three and a half million, which you know is gonna be by far the biggest contract of his career. Nearly a point a game player this season, and he's been producing at about that level for the past three seasons. He's a bona fide top line winger. I'm sure, you know, you look around, someone, Buffalo gave Jeff, Jeff Skinner $9 million AAV a few years ago. I'm sure someone would be willing to give Brian Russ something, you know, maybe not quite that high, but close to that territory. Pittsburgh probably can't afford it. So 
A, they're probably hoping he's willing to take a hometown discount. And B, for a team whose window appears to be pretty much closed, do you want to give a 30-year-old Brian Rust this extension? It's kind of the same question we asked about Forsberg. It's like, is it smart to extend him long-term? Probably not. Is it smart to have him walk? Probably not. You don't want anyone to walk, especially, you know, such a very t- a talented player like Brian Rust. Yeah, I think it's it's tough given, you know, how Pet- Pittsburgh clearly wants to c- continue to contend. Given that they're probably already letting go Latang, I don't think they'll I think they'll make a big push to sign resign Brian Rust. I don't see the, you know, he's not you know, he's 30, which is not great in terms of signing to a long-term extension. It's not the end of the world and we see it happen a lot. We see it happen very often. And I think they really like Brian Rust for good reason. He's really, really good. And yeah, I, I don't see them losing both Latang and Rust because I know, you know, they they it looks it sounds like they still want to contend, right? With Crosby, with potentially probably Malkin still on the team, but especially with Crosby. Uh yeah, I don't I don't see that I can't see them losing Rust. That would be I think that's too big of a hole to, to plug up. You can't it's it's like the Forsberg, like well, well, who was it? What was I talking about? It's like it's hard to, you know, where are you going to find that replacement? What team was I talking about? I don't think it was mm-hmm. Forsberg. It was, uh, anyways, it was some other player. Uh, but it's you, you can't Kevin Fiala, that. right? It was Kevin Fiala. That's what it was. Um, you can't replace that Brian Russ production, and it's clear that the Penguins aren't rebuilding. So I can't see that. I can't see the departure there. Mm-hmm. Um. Moving on to preview this Carolina-New York series, how many games do you think it takes for Carolina to beat the Rangers? <laughs> five. Five. Uh, they're just... Nah, maybe it's... Nah, I'll, yeah, I'll do five. I'll, I'll say it. Because, uh, man, the Rangers don't look good at 5-on-5. Five five, and Carolina's another team that is... Uh, that, you know, should be even better than Pittsburgh. Has, you know, the defensive system to go for it. The defensive talent as well. I, I think they can lock down... Like the Zabanajad and Panarin top end talent that kind of kept the Rangers afloat. I mean, Panarin wasn't great either, but it was really Zabanajad. Uh, so five games, especially if Ranta keeps playing the way he is. Yeah, I said Colorado in five. I said Calgary in five. Um, and, you know, there were no five games here since in round one. So maybe we're due for a bunch of five gamers. So I'm leaning Carolina in five also. One downside is that this series is the uh, Tony D'Angelo quote unquote revenge tour. It's his former team. Actually, another NYR fan, a bunch of numbers citing last night, uh, saying, hey, watch out for the storm surge at Rangers, which I feel like has put to rest the notion that this is actually Tony D'Angelo. Because I, I don't think, you know, you, I really don't think so anymore. I'm sorry to say. Too obvious. Uh, yeah, it's, it's exactly. That's, it's too obvious at this point. So it's, it's got to be someone doing a bit and fumbling slightly yesterday. Um, but anyway. I'm going to, you know, think with my head. Carolina's by far the better team. Um, they beat the Bruins, and the Rangers are worse than the Bruins. The Rangers should have lost to the Penguins, and the Hurricanes are even better. So it adds up to Carolina in five. All right. Very well. So moving on to the Atlantic. Where shall we begin? Uh, well, I guess we'll go chronologically. Uh, so Capitals and Panthers. Um, this went was uh, much tighter than one might think heading into it because yeah, the Capitals managed to take a series lead. Hell they had a they had like, you know, third period leads in like games four, I think five and six. So, you know, it's not like or no, they had a second period three nothing lead in game five is what it was. Uh but, you know, 
Florida managed to score their way out of their problems, mostly thanks to Carter Verhage, uh, who like averaged two points a game <laughs> and had like three game-winning goals. He was just absurd MVP in a series where, yeah, a lot of the like the the super superstars like Barkov uh, was were pretty quiet. You know, Huberto too, you know, you, you, they had less production than you kind of. Barkov was a point a game. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Which wow. Could potentially okay. feel. Yeah, two goals, four assists in six games. Feels kind of right. quiet though. Yeah, did feel kind of quiet, but I didn't realize he was. Uh, he had, he still had the production. Just goes to show how good he is. Uh, but yeah, Verhage was the MVP there. Uh, you know, Samsonov kind of fell off. He had a couple good games uh, for the Caps, but he wasn't particularly good down the stretch. Uh, the last couple of games for the Caps, Bobrovsky was solid. So. You know, the Capitals, it, it, it did feel like nervous moments for the Panthers, especially when the Caps took the series lead. Uh, and, but, you know, the Panthers managed to get it done. They were the better team on the ice. Uh, so, you know, it, it was your classic, can this worst team, like neutral zone, trap the better team enough to, you know, find the right bounces to win. Yeah, we really were. We were that close to six game sevens in round one. Which even just the five was insane. Usually we get like two or maybe three if we're lucky. And oftentimes in recent years, less than that. A few years ago, we had none. Um, but this series ended, you know, game six overtime. Carter Verhage, who else? Six goals, six assists in the six games. You know, maybe he belongs in that tier we were talking about. Makar, Ottinger, McDavid. But throw Carter Verhage in there. Very dominant showing from him on that top line. Um, Florida, obviously probably expected to and we're hoping to make a little, you know, easier business of Washington, who's much worse than them. But moving forward, perhaps it's a good sign for them that you can see where the opportunities are for players to step up. Uh, they expect more offense out of Jonathan Huberdeau, that entire second line with Bennett and Duclair too. Sam Reinhardt definitely has more in the tank than he showed in this series. Um, it was really that first line, the Verhege, Barkov, Giroud doing all the heavy lifting and Ekblad as well had a quite good series. And Bobrovsky was a 906, which was probably, you know, a pretty good, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? I feel like I've used exemplify already. Exemplification. There's another word for it. Uh, do you know, what, you know what I'm trying to say? Representation? You're, you're, good, you're silent. Yeah, yeah I, I I don't know. I can't think of the word myself. But It I'll represents look. the Panther season that Bobrovsky was a 906, and it was perfectly good enough. But perhaps he has room to step it up too. Basically, the ceiling is a lot higher than what Florida showed against Washington. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, it really goes to show... It, it, the real question is, can they unlock it moving forward? I feel like, you know, this is the same kind of deal with... I guess the same vibe as Calgary early on in that series against Dallas, where it felt like, okay, when are they going to take that next step? When's that top line going to unlock? And we they're kind of treading water, uh, but still winning games. Um, and Calgary turned it on at the end. So we'll see if, you know, Florida can turn it on themselves uh, against their cross-state rivals. Speaking of the Lightning, uh, well, you know what? I don't want to speak about the Lightning. I'm going to speak about the Leafs first uh, because they fucking lost again Woo! in a Game 7. You love to see it. Uh, this one wasn't... Applause. Yeah, thank you. Let's, let's do it. Shout out to them. Five years in a row. Just truly a, a remarkable feat of hockey, uh, of, of sport to do such a thing. and <laughs> Athletics. <laughs> quite to, 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 to do that um but it wasn't you know quite as embarrassing as past years you know losing to the blue jackets uh to the to the habs and whatnot uh you know they gave the lightning a good fight but it's just it's so funny 
to see them continuously lose in the first round. Uh, and yeah, it gives definitely gives different vibes though. Uh, but the the main the main thing moving forward is do they blow it up? I think you can't. Like I don't see how like it, the smart decision clearly is my takeaway from this is that they just need more kicks at the can. Right. Meanwhile, you know, the past two years, it felt like this team might legitimately be broken. Right. They might just not know how to win. Uh, but me coming out of this lightning series, given the caliber of the team that Lightning are and how they played, it just feels like maybe they got unlucky. They didn't get the bounce that they needed. And it happens because it's hockey. It's the Stanley Cup playoffs. We see it year in, year out with contending teams. Uh, it seemed like the Leafs played well enough to perhaps in a lucky year, they might, you know, make a deeper run. Doesn't that make it that much better that they found a new way to lose? Exactly. It's not the same every year. You know, last year and the year before against Columbus, it was Toronto's the better team, and they totally choked and collapsed in on themselves and embarrassed themselves. And this year they're playing the amazing Tampa Bay Lightning. They play up to their level. They're arguably even better. They arguably deserve to win, Yeah. especially when you take into account that Game 7 goal that got called back, which we could talk about a little bit if we wanted to. And yet... It still wasn't enough. Being great and not choking in Game 7 still wasn't good enough for the Maple Leafs to advance to Round 2. They've tried everything. They tried being bad. They tried being good. Nothing works. <laughs> um, it's really... like just The odds of this happening... It's We say five years in a row. It's six years in a row they've lost in the first round. It's five years in a row that it's been in the Game 7. Or in the case of that Columbus series, that was a best-of-five series. That was Game 5, which is more or less the equivalent. And the odds of that happening are incredibly small. I think I saw Dom decision calculated, but you think, you know, how many series go to Game 7. The odds of a series going to Game 7 are not that high, and the odds of it going against you five times in a row makes the odds that much smaller. So we've really witnessed a feat of mathematics here alongside a feat <laughs> of athletics. Um, and... Yeah, they just, you know, they keep finding ways, not to surprise us, because we saw this coming. Actually, I saw this coming down to the alternation of games. Remember our last episode, I said, I think Tampa and Toronto are going to keep alternating games, and then Tampa's going to get the back-to-back wins in game six and seven? I nailed that one. A home run for me. Good shit. Just elite stuff. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost written. Like, it's it's almost like a <laughs> storybook. Uh, storybook loss. You'll love to see it. Um. Yeah, it's just heartbreaking, man. It's so funny because, like, you know, the Leafs they got that gritty win in like Game Five where they won four three. You know, they were terrible in the first period. They scored their way out of it uh, and eventually won four three off a third period goal. And it was and it felt like, oh, this is it. This is like a playoff, you know, fucking winner win. Uh, and then you know they had a lead in the third period in Game Six, so they had a chance to close it down. They lose. And then fucking Nick Paul, of all people, scores two goals in Game 7. Uh, it's too funny. Uh, and yeah, the, you Nick said Paul it. Nick Paul does Leafs. it all. <laughs> Indeed. Um, that line was great, though. The, the Nick Paul, you know, Brandon Hagel, Ross Colton. Uh, just good stuff. Like a middle six line. Uh, everything that you could possibly want. They, you know, they dominated the ice when they were there. And just given great minutes for the Lightning. Uh, I think that was, you know, probably the most important line for them in winning this series. Uh, but yeah, the Leafs felt like the better team, didn't it? For like, especially at five on five, you know, Jack Campbell was very good. Uh, Matthews and Martin combined for some great goals, a good number of them. And yet, you know, you, you'd think, right? If Matthews and Martin, you know, they, they haven't performed in the past. If they find a way to get that offense going, if they get depth scoring as well from their forwards, 
and their defense isn't shambolic, uh, and that Jack Campbell plays great, that they would win the series. But they didn't. And that's what's so great about it. Uh, they just It's just everything went right for the Leafs in terms of their player performance, and yet they couldn't get the bounces to go. Um, it, it's fantastic in that it's hilarious to watch, but B, it does make me concerned moving forward because you know the Leafs feel like a threat um, if they can, you know, unlock performance in the playoffs like that. I don't like it moving forward because, you know, that's the formula for success to win in the playoffs. But uh, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy what they did this year and hope and pray that they blow it up because that would be so funny. It's not happening. It's not happening. Um, But what could potentially be some good news is that it won't be any easier for them next year. You think either Florida or Tampa is going to take a step back? Probably not. Um, so they they may very well draw Tampa or Florida again in next year's first round. Um, unless, of course, they win the division, which I suppose is a possibility. Uh, but then, in that case, if they're playing a bad team, perhaps they will revert to what happens when we play bad teams in the playoffs mode. You never know. You never know. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the John Tavares goal called back in Game 7 due to Justin Hall's interference? Right. That was, uh, you know... That was questionable. But then again, what do we expect from the uh, the officiating? I mean, yeah, it was a softball. It, it happens. You know, like that that stuff happens on many goals, and it's not called. And they let the goal in, uh, and it counts. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, you shrug, and you're like, well, that's NHL officiating for you. Uh, in the play- inconsistent as hell. You know, we've seen soft calls. Um, and it would be fine if they called all of them. Like, hell, that's a penalty, right, on Justin Hall. You can't interfere like that. That is a pick, but they don't call it at all in any other scenario, really. And that's what, you know, that's what sucks for the Leafs fans. This sucks for for hockey fans in general that they can't figure out the officiating. But was I surprised? Was I outraged? Was I shocked? No, I wasn't. This is what they do. They did it in all the other series, too. All sorts of bullshit calls where, you know, it's like it's, you know, like, uh, what is it? The, the one example that the Leafs, Leafs fan like to point out is like, you know, Kalorn blatantly holding Austin Matthews for an extended period of time. Yeah, absolutely. But that's what it is. That's what the, that's what the league is about. They just, uh, they don't know how to call their own game. Yeah, it is of my opinion. Watching that play, I go, that goal shouldn't count. That's interference. That should be against the rules. And, of course, we all want consistent consistency. But I want consistency in whatever that was, you know, even though it does, you know, result in a goal getting called back from time to time. Um, and I understand the frustration of Leafs fans who go, you know, this is the one time this call is made. It's egregious. It's ridiculous. Goal should have counted. We got jobbed. And to that, I say, too bad. Why don't you cry about it? You would have <laughs> lost anyway. Probably. And uh, yeah, that was it was an illegal pick. You scored on an illegal play, you know. I understand it's not called often, and that feels shitty, but you committed a penalty. You can't be too fucking sad that you got called for it, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? That's what it is. Uh, but yeah, I, I do understand the frustration you know, for the inconsistency. Go ahead. Maybe we could compromise, and that could count for half a goal. How do we feel about that? I'm for it. Let's give it to them. So the Leafs <laughs> got eliminated anyways. You'll have to see it. Yeah, it doesn't change shit. Okay, I'm good with that too. Uh, yeah, if only they scored another half goal. What a fucking... Yeah. They would have gone to <laughs> overtime, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. So Yeah, we should we should shout out Nick Paul too, as you kind of already did, um, because the Sens fans on my feed were having a super fun time with that. The, <laughs> the only It was like only the Leafs 
could find a way to get sensed in the playoffs when the Senators <laughs> didn't come close to making the playoffs. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, man, Pierre Dorian playing yeah. 3D, 3D chess, trading Nick Paul to the Lightning. Go, ah, this look at the Leafs for sure. I'm sure Eugene yeah. Meldick would have loved that, honestly. No one hated the Leafs more than him. Uh, so that was that was great. That was really funny. You love to see it. Uh, Nick Paul does it all. And uh, way to go, Ottawa. Good stuff. Congratulations to the Senators. You made it to the second round. Hashtag Good sense shit. in session. <laughs> Cody CC yeah. too, that same day. Wow. Scored the game-winning goal on his former Ottawa Senator and former Leaf. But, you know, Nick Paul, Cody CC getting it done in the playoffs. What can I say? The Sens ha- have had, for many years, a Stanley Cup contending roster. This just goes <laughs> to show. Right? Their players are just bawling. Uh, it's just, yeah. What can I say? There's there's no other way to put it. Uh yep. yeah, no, that was that was a pretty sick goal though too. Nick Paul like kicks it to himself, you know. Oh yeah, they both right. It was beautiful. Good shit. Skill play by Nick Paul. Mm-hmm. Nick Paul. All right, so round two, Tampa, Florida. What are you thinking? What are you leaning? Man, this is a, this is a tough one to call. Uh, it's just the Panthers feel like they're better on paper, kind of similar to the Leafs in this case, but. Man, the Panthers make me nervous as hell, you know, like the way they looked against the Capitals. You'd expect them to dominate like the Avalanche did. And the Lightning, you know, finding ways to win. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, it, I feel like the Panthers' talent is better. And the, the main point I'm going to focus on here is indeed Braden Point uh, because he had a nasty-looking injury in Game 7. Uh, fell awkwardly after a hit. It looked like his leg buckled under him. Doesn't seem like he's going to be there to start the series. And that is a big loss to the Lightning, who I'm not sure how they, you know, replace his production, particularly his playoff production for a guy like Braden Point. So, you know, I think it's tight. I think if he comes back early, the Lightning certainly have a chance. I think they have a chance regardless because they are very talented. But I think it tips the scales quite a bit for me personally, uh, that point injury. So I'm taking the Panthers and I'm taking it in seven. All right. I'm sticking to my guns here, picking the Lightning, even though the Braden Point injury does scare me. Going seven for this one as well, though. Um, one thing about the Panthers is that you we're talking about how high their ceiling is. Um, if they play against Tampa like they did against Washington, I think they're pretty much cooked. They are. You know, with their depth, yep. with their depth scoring not showing up. And I think Tampa, if they play like they did against the Leafs, then they're probably going to have a pretty decent shot, even without Braden Point. Um, it is perhaps worth noting, though, that uh, do you know, you know who's coming into the lineup to replace Braden Point? No, I don't. Who is it? Riley Nash, Riley ass Nash. <laughs> Which you know, Wolf. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's not great, of course. Uh, he's best known for being a no event player, which is like the next level of a low event player. Uh, when he's on the ice, it tends to be you know, nothing against, but definitely nothing for. Uh, which you know. If you throw that out there against, you know, a lot of the Panthers lines, and right now he's slated to go in the third line with Brendan Hagel and Ross Colton, yeah. who have a decent amount of offense to their game, okay. um, that could potentially be a mix that works. So I'm okay with that. All right. That that, uh, that is quite the downgrade, though, I got to say. Point two. Uh, yes. Nash, that's a yikes. Um, but, yeah, no, I think yeah, the Panthers do make me nervous because they have, you know, uh, the they well, prior to four days ago they hadn't won a playoff series since like 2000 and whatever and 96 or 96 never mind ne- scratch 2000 the 2000 
<laughs> yeah, no, they hadn't won a series in forever, and it wasn't convincing the way they won against the Capitals, at least for me. So, yeah, it, it does make me nervous because they don't have that playoff winning experience, which, like, you know, is overrated perhaps, but, you know, the vibes, it certainly helps the vibes. I got to say, that's my version of the eye test. Yeah, um, I agree. So I think we were pretty much in lockstep for every team except for this last one. Um, we have we do have a good eight. I'm I'm kind of in a way pleased that there were no big upsets because it kind of does feel like we have the eight deserving teams here in the elite eight, um, except wild. Edmonton, uh, <laughs> Edmonton in New York maybe slightly less so. True, but you're down. You're bound to get a, a few duds, and I think. Uh, we could potentially see the best Final Four we've had in a while because looking back on it, the past couple of years in the Final Four, we've had like two teams with serious cup aspirations, you know? Like last year, you could have said Tampa and Vegas. It never really appeared that the Islanders or Montreal were going to win. Same thing the year before with like, you know, uh, Dallas and the Islanders. It was like, all right, we know that this is really a Tampa or Vegas situation. Um, and it seems to happen pretty often in the conference finals that you look at the four and you go, okay, this is like, you know, two or maybe three of you have a real shot here. We could get more than that. This guy's, this guy's really jinxing us here, isn't he? And in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about how the Oilers and the Rangers are both going to be in the conference finals. And it's nope, going to be happening. completely your fault. Flames Hurricanes. It's a, uh, <laughs> wait and see. They Use better. Wait and see. They better. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is, it is a good bunch. It's going to be some pretty exciting series, especially that, you know, the Atlantic one. Looking forward to that one for sure. Uh, and yeah, it, it is shaping up to be an excellent conference final uh, set. I think, you know, I think the matchups aren't, you know, particularly even this round. But I'm happy that, you know, many of the favorites managed to make their way here. Yeah. Um. All right. Now, why don't we talk about the draft lottery? Long Let's overdue. We could have start, started the show with this. We love the draft lottery. What are we thinking? Shane Wright is coming to Montreal. And he's going to be drafted first overall by Montreal in Montreal on July 7th. And this is like the third time in or fourth time in like seven years or something that the team with the highest odds at winning the first pick actually won the top pick, which is actually extremely disproportionate. It should be about one every, once every five years. But it happened again. What was uh, your reaction upon hearing this news? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to. I learned something. I read something, I think it was on Sportsnet, that uh, about the format of this draft lottery. And it's that the top, the you know, the team with the top odds, so the Habs in this case, actually have a 25% chance of winning the in this new format the first pick. Because uh, I think we discussed, like, it was like not clear last week what happens no. if, you know, like team 13, 14, 15 wins and they jumped up to the third pick. Well, from what Sportsnet, according to Sportsnet, uh, if that happens, Montreal or the the worst team gets locked into the first pick rather than the first pick being up for grabs in the second lottery. So oh. that 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 makes it even worse, man. That's terrible. Uh, like it's like a <laughs> disproportionate percentage for that first pick going to the you know the worst team. That's around over one in four, and uh, we don't like that. That that gives us these kind of uh, you know boring results. We want a big team, you know, a, a good team, a bubble playoff bubble team jumping up and grabbing it. That's a lot of fun. Um, but alas, that is not what it is anymore. So another reason to rag on the draft format. Uh, so that's that. And as for the Habs winning, I mean, yeah, it's cool. 
I think it's it's you know it doesn't happen often. What was the stat like? Hasn't happened like forty years where the Habs win the first overall pick. So uh, good for them. I mean, congratulations, and it's cool that he's gonna you know whoever it is gets drafted uh, in the city in the host city is the first overall pick holder. That's cool. And as for the Devils getting the second pick, if I may move on and give my opinion on that. Uh, very funny. Very funny. They win a whole bunch of lotteries and then win another one. And you'll love to see it. Uh, it's my favorite thing. I hate that they outlawed it with that two lotteries in five years nonsense. Uh, I just want teams to win over and over because I think it's very funny. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's great that, you know, the Devils weren't disqualified because, you know, the, the counting starts like this year or whatever it is. Uh, because it just makes for a great result, and uh, yeah, it, like it's like Edmonton 2.0. It's it's always very funny. It's entertaining, and you love to see it. Yeah, so I didn't realize with this new format that the worst team has like that extra disproportionate chance of holding on to the top pick. So it's kind of funny that Detroit complained about the system and got it changed just in time for them to be good enough for it to not benefit them anymore. <laughs> Dumbasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so stupid. But anyway, um, yeah. So she ain't right. Thinking, you know, that's a great fit in Montreal. It'd be a great fit anywhere except Philadelphia. No one wants him going to Philadelphia. That'd be boring as shit. But anyway, good fit in Montreal. Of course, you know they've needed bona fide top line center forever. Suzuki is a good one, but I think he's better suited down the line as a really high end number two. Rather than, you know, a number one. And Shane Wright is 100%, I'm confident, able to grow into that number one. Not right away, of course. He'll probably start out, like, centering the third line, maybe, behind Suzuki and Dvorak. Something like that. But I really think this is, uh, there was a franchise-changing day for Montreal. They, they draft Shane Wright, Ruby 2. And he is going to be uh, the cornerstone of this team. The face of the franchise. Alongside Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki, of course. For, uh... For a long time, for you know, 10, 15 years or so. And uh yeah, cannot be understated how important the draft lottery is. Right. You just get a different caliber of player. Uh yeah, so I think it'll be interesting. We'll see, you know, there's there's been buzz because you know Shane Wright hasn't had like an elite elite season in terms of production in what like two years now because he didn't play last year. And this year he was pretty good, but not like elite elite. So, you know, we'll see if there's any Logan Cooley or Uri Slavkovsky buzz moving forward. It's not happening. Uh, it's not, not happening. happening. You're, you're guaranteeing it here on the air? I'm putting my Alex Mellaris guarantee stamp on it. Here's All my right. new trademark. Shane Wright's going first overall, and I'm really going out on a limb here. And I think he's going to be the right choice, too, and worth it down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at guys who, you know, are from the time they're like 15 years old, people are projecting like, oh, yeah, going to be the first pick in this draft here. And then, you know, even if they do slow down or, like, other names get into the mix, it ends up working out. Look at, you know, McKinnon. McKinnon had been the guy since he was 15. Seth Jones works his way into the mix. Some people are saying Seth Jones or Jonathan Drouin could, could go number one. Uh, Look at, you know, look at McKinnon, the guy who's there the whole time. Same type of thing with Matthews and Lion A. The only example I can think that didn't quite work out that way was Nolan Patrick and Nico Hischier, where the guy who showed up late to the scene ended up going first and being decidedly better. But, uh... That's the exception to the rule. Yeah, I think I agree. Absolutely. I think the track record of success, even if it's in junior, feels like it's a more reliable indicator of future success. Obviously, the quality of competition changes, uh, but if you're able to maintain it, I think you know you, you, get, you, you have a higher floor. You have less bust potential. 
So I would tend to agree, but you know, that's what the people are saying. I'm not saying uh, Shane Wright would be maybe the wrong pick. I'm saying people are saying nonsense. People say all sorts of things. All right. Fair enough. That's true. Uh, so <laughs> that is a factual statement. And uh, yeah, that's uh, well, we'll see how it goes. Arizona falls to number three. Sucks to suck. Eat shit. And uh, yeah, that's the draft lottery. Good stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it sucks to suck, Arizona. Wow. College, college looking ass, college arena looking yeah, ass. Well, you deserve right. it, man. You deserve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, some people were fired this week. Um, let's start with Pierre Maguire, who was on the job in Ottawa for less than a year. Um, man, did that ever not work out? And uh, you know, we don't even have such a great sense of like what what stuff he did. What I saw though was Dorian or whoever was talking essentially threw Maguire under the bus for specifically signing Michael Delzato, which was <laughs> so far from the worst thing the Sense have done in the past year. Like, who cares about the Michael Delzato sign? Sure, okay, he wasn't great, so you, so you waved him and sent him to the minors where he dominated because he's like a fringe NHLer who shouldn't be in the AHL. Uh, or as you know, a number one defenseman in the AHL. And he, oh no, he signed for $2 million against the cap next year too before he becomes a UFA. And he's 31 and we have a kajillion dollars in cap space. Literally, this was arguably in the top half of moves the Senators made. So if that was the one, if that was the one thing Pierre Maguire did, keep him on board. I'm serious. And it's a very bad sign that that's what they're throwing him under the bus for because it means they think it was like some sort of disaster. Not the Hamannick trade, not drafting Tyler Boucher 10th overall, only to have him put up numbers in junior that are like equivalent of guys who retire at 23. It's just, it's 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 really baffling that that's the particular move that they chose. Yeah, I think a lot of this confusion stems from the fact that, yeah, as you said earlier, we don't know what he did. Uh, there's nothing we can point to that was like, oh, that's a Pierre Maguire move because... I, I thought drafting is... Tyler Boucher and trading for Travis. I assume those were the Pierre Maguire moves, all the worst ones. You would hope so. Uh, you would for the sense sake, because uh, yeah, he just kind of disappeared. Nobody talked about him, you know, until he was fired, right? I didn't. We, I mean, we laughed at him occasionally, but he didn't really come up in the headlines until uh, he was fired. So you know, sounds like a lot of organizational dysfunction. Not sure how the uh, hierarchy kind of worked with the owner and Maguire and Dorian. It seemed like it seemed pretty messy and maybe a, a bit of a power struggle was going on. And that's never good. That's toxic. And if Dorian's throwing Maguire under the bus, that sounds like it's derived from a power struggle kind of situation. So that's that's not how a good organizations run. And uh, aside from that, I mean, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like, who could have seen this coming, huh? Pierre Maguire fired after less than a year. Uh, it, all indications are that he's an idiot. So, I mean... I'm not entirely surprised at all. But I'm I'm kind of surprised that the Sens came to this conclusion so quickly, uh, even if it was because they thought Michael Dozada was the Sens apocalypse. Honestly, it might just be because like, he's annoying and he talks too much. That could have been it too. Yeah, maybe just got annoyed. And so... Yeah, like, yeah, we don't need, th- we don't need this around. Um, and I also, I do understand... How, I'm not. I wouldn't have expected them to like throw t- Tyler Boucher under the bus, who was their most recent first round pick, alongside being, oh yeah, that was Pierre's idea, so we got rid of him. When you know you're still hoping this guy, you know, grows into a good player. Same type of thing with Hamannick, who you like just traded for. You don't want to be like, oh yeah, we knew this was a good bad idea right away. Whereas Delzato, who you know you signed and then waived like a month into the year, even he has the idea that like, yeah, they're wishing I was better than this or something like that. Um, next up though, 
on our list is Pete DeBoer, finally let go by Vegas. Uh, this probably could have been done several weeks ago. Not sure what the holdup was. Now it's done. It's over. And he is officially looking for work. And Vegas is officially looking for a new coach. And as I would say for any team looking for a new coach this summer, Claude Julien should be named one, two, and three on your list. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with the bower, he just, oh, yeah, I don't think we, oh, never mind. I'll get to it later. Uh, but uh, anyways, Peter Bower doesn't, no indication that he was a good coach at all. Uh, you know, like questionable hiring in the first place when it came to, you know, Gerard Gallant wasn't such a bad coach and seemed to really extract performance out of it. And yeah, we've kind of known all along that this guy's an asshat. And it makes sense that he ran out of time. He ran out of runway. And he just, man, he did not get that Vegas team engaged at all. Like, with, you know, it was just disappointment after disappointment, whether it was last year, you know, collapsing to the Habs or this year. It just seems like his whole team gave up on him, even though, yeah, there were injuries. But even those healthy guys, didn't seem like they were trying. They were motivated, and that's on the coach, hundred percent. So, yeah, I have, I, I, you know, he had some, he had good years in San Jose, but that roster was very well built by Doug Wilson. So I'm not entirely sold on the Pete DeBoer package. And yeah, this high, this firing was uh, way overdue because he, you know, he was a big reason why Vegas just fucking missed the playoffs with that roster. Yeah, um, I do realize I did just say. Claude Julien should be, you know, names one, two, and three on your list. But I momentarily forgot that Barry Trotz was just fired too. <laughs> so I changed my answer. <laughs> Barry Trotz is the best coach <laughs> coach on the market. Indeed. Um, I cannot wrap my mind about how Lou Lamorello looks at the Islanders, who are a terrible team on paper, who Barry Trotz dragged kicking and screaming to the conference finals two years in a row. He was the reason why. One bad year, and it's Trotz's fault. And the only thing I can gather from this is that Lou thinks he's assembled a team of great players who are much better than they actually are. That's that's all that's all there is. Because he didn't even like you know talk to anyone about it, apparently. Someone asked him in the press conference. He was like, no, I didn't really talk to anyone about firing the coach. I kind of just did it. So now Barry Trotz, one of the best coaches in the world, out of a job. And Lane Lambert, longtime assistant coach, has been promoted. Does this make the Islanders better? Who's to say? Uh, me, I say no. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, no, this is, it's really that one point that L- Lou made was that, yeah, he didn't consult anybody. This is not a group decision with ownership or whatnot or with the players. He just decided one day in his fucking office that he was done with Barry Trotz. And that is, man, that is that, that, you know, senile old man making this stupid ass call for the franchise. They, they, they got to get him out of there because the roster he built, first of all, stinks. And we've talked about that. And Trust was just able to, you know, pull performance out of his ass. And now that he's gone, the roster still stinks. So I can't see any kind of move up. And it's time for the Islanders to move on from Lou Lamorello. Because this was the one move we talked about repeatedly that he got right. Right? It was hiring Barry Trotz. That's what made this whole thing successful with the Islanders. Because he did a whole bunch of fucking nonsense with that roster. I didn't make any sense whatsoever. And, but Barry Trotz papered over his mistakes. So now that he's gone for no apparent good reason that he's willing to give us, uh, I don't see how the Islanders do better or contend or really do anything with the state of their roster. It's old as hell. There's not much of a tight line. And Lou Lamarillo is making all these boneheaded moves. And 
yeah, there's a there's a very very clear cut ceiling. Now that you've lost the best coach in the world in Barry Trotz, I don't know how good of a coach Lane Lambert is. Seems like I don't think he's head coach in the NHL before, so we'll see. His name has come up a bunch of times in terms of head coaching positions. So sounds like he's qualified, but you know, not Barry Trotz is his, is the main knock on him. Honestly, now that Trotz is gone, like while the Islanders were successful the past few years, the identity was, oh yeah, we're Barry Trotz's team. Barry Trotz coaches us, and that's why we're good. And now that that's gone, um, they pre- I don't see you know much of a window here for them to get any higher in the standings than they were this year, which was like 10th in the East. And I could even foresee, you know, depending on how far of a step back Lambert is from Trotz, them like, you know, dropping all the way to near the basement. Unless Ilya Sorokin maintains his, you know, Vezina finalist form, which could, of course, reasonably happen. And that would, I guess, drag them to around where they finish this season. But I look at this team, and it, honestly, it kind of reminds me of Nashville. A great goalie who's kind of, you know, impeding you from a teardown, as well as some, you know, I guess the Islanders have, you know, more bad contracts in the forwards. You know, they have they have one, two, three, four, five, six forwards making at least $5 million, and it's barely Pajot, Palmieri, Nelson, Barzell, and Lee. That's gross. <laughs> Disgusting. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think it's it's generous to say maybe they maintain their place in the standings, Uh, you know, like 10th place. Man, this this roster sucks. It's so bad. There's like no talent on it aside from Sorokin and Barzal, uh, and you know that defense pair of Pulak Pelik. Uh, it's just it's just so poorly built. There's no speed. It's all old dudes, and you know how Trotz had them playing well down the stretch. Like obviously they were eliminated already, but you know after they got that like long ass road trip out of the way to begin the season, they were fine. They were you know playoff bubble if they had started the year off right. And that's saying a lot for this roster because it's so bad. I am not a fan of this roster at all. I think it's terrible. I think it's, you know, bottom six in the league, no doubt. Um, So, you know, the fact that Trotz got them all the way even to 10th in the East is impressive, I think. And it's only down from here. There's just, there's no talent on this roster. There's not enough talent to be a playoff team for the Islanders. Ross Johnston is signed until 2026. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. What a joke! What a joke! Wait, it's I remember. Like, man, hold on. Let me take a look at something. I think I remember in like yeah, summer twenty eighteen, yeah, July twenty eighteen, Ross Johnston was signed to a four year contract, a million dollars per year, and then back this past October, he was signed to a four year extension, another one, one point one million dollars per year, getting a little bit of a raise. So inflation. Yeah, inflation, am I right? So that's basically, that's eight years in a row of contracts with the Islanders for Johnson, preceded by his ELC. Um, but it's just, I don't know why. Lou has this tendency to just, you know, he did it to Matt Martin too. He signed Matt Martin to a four-year deal while he was in Toronto. And then he goes to Islanders, acquires Matt Martin, signs him to another four-year deal when the first <laughs> one's almost done. Yeah, it's just, it's it's inexplicable. These, what is it? Like these gritty fourth line players, really. At uh, best, a fourth line player. Yeah, at best. That's right. And he has some sort of affinity for it. And it's, you know, it's his undoing because you get those players get roster time. They drag the quality of the team down. And yeah, this man. Yeah, this, this is not, this is a lottery roster with, you know, a superstar or two or three, but that's it. Everybody else thinks. 
Uh, I hope Connor Bedard does not go to this team. That'd be oh, so boring. God. I just hope Lou gets fired. You know, his team stink. He's boring. Enough of this old man. You know, well, he he's gives, he's not boring. It's fun to talk uh, about. His teams are boring. That's what it is. Yeah, you know, they're they're just bad. They're not even entertainingly bad like the Senators. They're just shit. You know, like when do we talk about the Islanders this year? We didn't talk about the Islanders this year, right? Like hell, nobody really. And, even and years past. Yeah. And in years past, when we did talk about the Islanders, it was because we kept talking about how we wished we didn't have to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's not Barry Trotz's fault. He's just doing what he can with this boring ass roster. So, you know, despite all the entertainment Lou gives us in terms of his weird ass logic and sound bites, I, man, his teams are just brutal to watch because, you know, you can tell he just doesn't really know what he's doing in the new age NHL. Yep. All right. We shall cap off this episode by running down some awards finalists, starting with the Norris Trophy. Victor Hedman, Roman Yossi, Kel Makar. No surprises at all. It was pretty much a two-horse race between Yossi and Makar. Uh, you may have gathered from things I said earlier this episode, I lean towards Kel Makar. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the three that you know people saw coming a mile away. And I think Makar is just much more dynamic this year. Uh, Yossi obviously put up crazy numbers. But I feel like Makar, A, just you know dominated the game overall, was better in his own zone, and... Yeah, just flat out better. I don't know how else to put it. He also missed a bunch of time to, to compensate for his, his you know deficit in points compared to Yossi. So mm-hmm. I, I have Makar winning as my yep. preference. Uh, I, I, I'm realizing now just when you were talking about the Islanders, I said Sorokin was the Vesna finalist. He wasn't. But I think I got mixed up because he should have been, perhaps. Or there's at least a strong case to be made. But the actual finalists are the eventual winner, Igor Shesterkin, we all assume. Yossi Saros. And Jakob Markstrom. Sorokin had a case to get into that top three. Freddie Anderson had one as well. Uh, but uh, but these are the selections that the GMs made. Yeah, I think Vasilevsky even had a case too. I mean, he wasn't, you know, Vezina winner. But I think he had a case to be a finalist to get some votes. So it was, it was a pretty tight field, you know. I would say those six goalies, uh, all of them had a case to be a Vezina finalist. And as for the winner, I think everybody's known who it's going to be for the last, I don't know, five months now. Igor Shesterkin, by and by the best goalie in the world. He was just crazy good. Uh, and he carried that Rangers team that doesn't have much else going for it other than a power play. All right, let's talk about the Hart and Ted Lindsay together. I think the Hart voters, I think they got it absolutely right. Uh, Matthews, McDavid, Shesterkin, that's who I would have gone with in that order, I believe, too. Ted Lindsay, voted on by the players, Matthews, McDavid, and Yossi. Now, this episode's kind of, you know, going on a little bit long and I'm sure we'll have time later on to dive into these awards a little bit more but it's really dawned on me how Hart and Ted Lindsay are the exact same trophy just voted on by different demographics and more and more these days anyone who tries to get all fancy talking about oh yeah valuable and exceptional aren't the same thing just grates on me you know I've had enough it's the same thing yeah I think I'm surprised it's taking you this long to realize the thing it really is the same award it's just best player in the NHL basically um and that made the playoffs, if you want to do it that way for the heart, uh, and really the Ted Lindsay too. Uh, so yeah, you're right. It's just the players vote on one. The I guess the what is it? The media votes on the other. And I guess the players this year had uh, had a, had the weirder point of view because uh, you know Yossi is a finalist. I I don't see how you can argue 
that because uh, he's not the third best all-around player this year, uh, even though he had, I don't know, 100 points. He didn't quite have 100. Also, I'm sure there are some people listening who are thinking like, yeah, valuable player is different from best player because like, you know, if you're the really good player on the rest of your team is bad, you're more valuable. Um, I, one of these, This is a promise. I'm making a promise. One of these weeks, one of these episodes, I will explain to you why that's not the case and why the better a player is, the more valuable they are. All right. Well, we're looking forward to that. Maybe that'll be uh, the awards week episode whenever okay. that happens to be. We can... You can you can present your rant. Uh, all right. So yeah. But other than that, they got it about right. Other than Yossi, I mean Matthews and McDavid are just far and away uh, elite. And Shesterkin, you could argue, was the most valuable or even the best player all around, uh, given how he played for the Rangers. All right. Uh, moving on, we got the uh, the Calder Trophy. Calder. Calder. Trophy. Calder. <laughs> Calder. Uh, with the three finalists, we got Mo Sider. We have Trevor Zegers, and we have. Uh, Michael Bunting, old ass man that nobody no, nobody can stop talking about his age and how old he is. Uh, but yeah, that's where he is. Uh, notable absences are, uh, well, what's his name? Fuck, uh, Lucas Raymond of the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, so it's really kind of these four. I thought Zegris was really the surprise one. I thought, you know, Raymond would get more votes than him. But uh, here we are. And I don't see the big outrage. This is This is about what we expect. I have some outrage. You ready? Oh, let's hear it. Is it Michael Bunting right. outrage? It is Michael Bunting outrage. All right. Somehow this has become a contrarian position, but okay. I was this whole time. All right, Michael Bunting, he had a great year, a breakout year, great player. Did great on that top line with two superstar players. Um, I was honestly in my mind for one reason or another was fully was like, oh, yeah, it'll be Cider Raymond and someone else. So did not see Lucas Raymond on the list. It was very surprising. And I think, recency bias played a factor because he was so dominant in like the first couple months of the season then kind of tailed off and i feel like people see that and they think oh he's not as good as we thought but you got to take the whole year into account and i think he should be in the top three the calder memorial trophy i'm reading on wikipedia now is an annual award given to the player selected as the most proficient in his first year of competition in the national hockey league um and proficient is a very awkward choice of words there because it kind of feels like competent, you know, like the one who got by the best. Yeah. The definition of proficient is literally competent or skilled in doing or using something. Um, and I just, okay. I know people, I don't really have a bone to pick with the rules themselves of like where the age cut off and the number of games cut off and all that. And so I understand people are like, oh yeah, this is the rules. Bunting counts as a rookie, so you have to, you know, uh, give uh, an evaluation of his season. But I feel like, even though sure Bunting is eligible for this award, we have to take into account the fact that he has played in the NHL over several seasons, and he has played professional hockey for a long time, and therefore he isn't on the same field as a guy like Zegers or Raymond, and his season is therefore less impressive because he's played in the NHL for many seasons before. Not saying he shouldn't be eligible. I'm just saying he should get points off because he has a leg up already on those players. And it just feels weird. feels weird that everyone's pretending that he doesn't and that, oh, it's exactly the same that this guy who's like three weeks younger than Nathan McKinnon who won this award like eight years ago. It's like, oh, yeah, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. 
He's been around forever. There, that's it. Hi, everyone. It's post-production Alex, and I'm here to report the sad news that we have lost the final 10 minutes of Taisei's file. It's just evaporated into thin air. Um, but it's okay because uh, all the meat of the episode is pretty much done anyway. Uh, we kind of just goofed off for the last 10, so I'm going to end it here. Thanks for listening, etc.